Hello, Bible readers. This is the Rooted Podcast, and this is week number 42. And this week we'll be covering the entire Gospel of Mark and all 16 chapters on this podcast. You would have read a few chapters last week, uh, but we're just going to address them all this week. So a few things to remember when reading through Mark. First, Mark was written to a Roman audience to present Jesus as the suffering servant. Second, Mark is the shortest of all the Gospels, and some believe it was also the first Gospel of the four to be written down. Third, Mark is a book of action, using words like immediately and straightway. 50% of Christ's recorded miracles are in Mark, but only 25% of his parables. This shows us that Mark viewed Jesus as a man of action more than a man of words. Fourth, Mark's gospel is a compact one, and many think um, that's because it was written first and it's the shortest, that other gospels like Matthew and Luke use Mark's gospel as a base text or as an outline for their books. Fifth, the key verse to Mark is Mark 10.45. This verse... um, it divides the book up into two sections, the servant and healer in chapters 1 through 10, and the suffering Savior in chapters 11 through 16. The first verse of Mark is unique. Look at what it says. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. I'm reading from a New King James. This phrase echoes all the way back to Genesis 1-1, which is the beginning of God's creative work. But the phrase also signals that God is initiating something new here. This is the beginning of the long-awaited salvation, the good news promised by the prophets. You see, a proper understanding of Jesus' ministry requires an understanding of the prophecy concerning the Messiah. Now, to start with here, in chapter 1, verses 2 through 13, Mark records three events that the reader needs to understand about Jesus' ministry. They entail John's ministry, Jesus' baptism, and Jesus' temptation. Remember, we said that Mark's gospel was compact, and he does not mention Christ's preexistence, his ancestry, his birth, or even his early years. These matters would not be important for a servant, since the interest is always on what the servant can do, not where, not where he came from. What Luke does in 183 verses... This same material is summarized by Mark in only 13 verses. Now, beginning in chapter 1, verse 14, we are thrown into the first year of Christ's ministry. Mark summarizes Christ's preaching and then begins with the call of the four fishermen. One of the things that is pointed out about James and John is that they broke family ties with their father to follow Jesus. Uh, The mention of hired men suggested their father Zebedee owned a prosperous business that James and John left. So gone is a perspective pushed by many of the disciples that Jesus chose were poor and had nothing in this world. It seems that John and James gave up something, but that's what a servant does. Jesus gave up the glory of heaven to be a servant to his father's will. He took action. Then in verse 21 through 34 of chapter 1, it records three instances of Jesus' ministry in Capernaum. Jesus' teaching and healing in the synagogue, the healing of Peter's mother-in-law, and his healing of many others occurred on one day. Mark seems to be trying to demonstrate to us what a typical day in the life of Jesus looked like. Again, he was a man of action, doing things for people as the servant does. And these incidents also show his authority, authority over demons, over the religious leaders, over physical sickness. Earlier, we noted that Mark was written to a Roman audience. Mark's heavy push to demonstrate Jesus' authority was something that the Romans responded well to. And so Mark finished out chapter 1 with the account of the leper. And there are only two leper accounts in the Gospels, one in Luke and one here. This incident was significant for Mark because it brought religious leaders from Jerusalem into Galilee to investigate Jesus. What Mark highlights in the account is the 
disobedience of the healed leper. And there is a lesson for us all here. One author says it this way, sometimes believers disobey God because we think our way will be better than his way. It never is. Frequently, it has the same result as this cleansed leper's disobedience. It retards God's mission rather than advancing it. From chapter 2, verse 1 through chapter 3, verse 6, we find material about Jesus' initial conflicts with the religious leaders. There are five incidents recorded in this section, and they are arranged topically, not chronologically. The opposition of the religious leaders continue to grow throughout this section. They come face to face with the most convincing arguments and actions about Jesus' deity. The Pharisees, however, chose to reject them, and instead of leaving Jesus alone, they take steps to kill him. The text of chapter 3, verse 6 says that the Pharisees met with the Herodians, supporters of Herod, already early on to plot to kill Jesus. This is in verse chapter 3, verse 6, already on. They're already deciding to get rid of Jesus. Ironic, isn't it? That the Pharisees had trouble with Jesus healing on the Sabbath, but they had no issue with going to the Herodians to plot his death on the Sabbath. The reason for going to the Herodians is that the Jews Jews likely wanted to gain support from Herod, who is the authority over the whole region. Now, because the religious leaders are determined to kill Jesus, he withdraws to the region of Galilee. And from chapter 3, verses 7 through 19, we see that Jesus' ministry broadens as his ministry to the multitudes is highlighted. Um, Sometimes the multitudes are not as blind as the religious leaders. People came from great distances to hear Jesus and be healed by him. Even the demons recognized Jesus as the Son of God, while some humans had trouble. Even today, some humans still have trouble. Then Jesus chooses his 12 disciples who would be with him and sent out by him. From chapter 3, verse 20 to the end of the chapter, we find mounting opposition. It seems that Jesus' family was concerned about his mental and physical health. His ministry kept him so busy that he didn't have time to sit down and eat without being interrupted. While his family might have had the best of intentions, interrupting God's will will always be interference. Religious leaders were also causing more opposition. This time they take Excuse me, they make the ultimate claim that Jesus is allied with Satan. And as far as this phrase goes, the unpardonable sin, um, it's a phrase that has caused much discussion throughout church history. What is it? Well, it, in a word, it's unbelief. How does a person avoid committing the unpardonable sin? They believe in the testimony that the Holy Spirit has given about Jesus in scriptures, namely that he, Jesus, is the Christ, the divine Messiah. Um, not believing that Jesus is who he says he is, because one must believe in Jesus for salvation. So if you don't believe in Jesus for salvation, then there is no other way to heaven but by Jesus. So when a person refuses to believe this, they have committed the sin that God cannot pardon, which is called unbelief. Now, moving on to chapter 4, this is the first of three extended teaching sessions that Mark records. This section includes three parables that describe the character of the kingdom. This chapter is similar to Matthew's parables in Matthew 13, but far less extensive than Matthew. And these parables of the soil shows there will be a great variety of responses to the good news about the kingdom. The parable of the seed growing by itself shows that the good news will bring forth fruit by itself. The parable of the mustard seed reveals that although the word uh, is small, it will eventually produce something very, very large. Now, verses 33 to 34 are crucial to understanding the roles of parables. The parables were similar to bait for the crowds. They kept them seeking what Jesus had to offer, which included the revelation of himself as the Messiah. And when seekers came to follow Jesus as disciples, he explained the true characteristics of the kingdom more clearly to prepare them for it. 
So from chapter 4, verse 35 to the end of chapter 5, we have four miracles which demonstrate Jesus' power. The stilling of the storm, delivering of a demon-possessed man, raising Jairus' daughter back to life, and the healing of a woman with a hemorrhage. Remember, as a servant, he often authenticated his words with his works or with his actions. And even though Jesus gave ample evidence that he was more than a man, those who knew him best still refused to believe because chapter 6 tells us that even in his own hometown, they reject him. This refusal led Jesus to turn away from the multitudes and pour his time and teaching into his disciples. He trains uh, the disciples in order that they may be sent out on a preaching and healing mission that extends his own ministry. And when this, within this account, between their departing and returning from this mission, Mark inserts the story of John the Baptist's death. He devoted more space to John's death than his actual life. He devoted more space here. And John and Jesus had many similarities. John, like Jesus, was executed by a secular ruler, Herod. Like Pilate did not want to execute his prisoner, but fell um, fell into the pressure of pleasing others. Herodias, like the chief priests, schemed to bring about the execution. And John's disciples, like Jesus, would bury the body of their leader. Maybe the reason why John's death is sandwiched between the departure and return of the disciples is to illustrate the cost of true discipleship, something that the disciples have yet to realize. Now, continuing to train his disciples from chapter 6, verse 31 to the end of chapter 7, Jesus brought his disciples to a deeper understanding of who he was and to a deeper commitment of himself. The feeding of the 5,000, by the way, which is the only miracle in all four Gospels, demonstrated the need for the disciples to focus on the source of their provisions, which was God, rather than the means and the methods used. You see, just a few hours later, Jesus walks on water. Did you ever realize how much little time elapsed between these two famous miracles? Did you notice that Peter was missing in this account as the one who walked on the water? Interesting, huh? Well, for Mark, Jesus is the focus, not Peter. In more confrontation with religious leaders, defilement seems to be issues of concern now in chapter 7. Religious leaders are claiming that the disciples are defiling themselves, but ironically, Christ turns the table on them and exposes them as corrupt. He corrects their understanding. Evil is not a matter of food and drink, but out of of what comes out of the heart uh, of mankind. The evil that comes out of a person's heart is what defiles that person, Jesus says. Jesus did not observe the traditional separation from defiling associations as others did, and he illustrated that by going into Gentile territory. That's the reason for including the two additional stories of healing towards the end of this chapter of chapter 7. The Syrophoenician woman and the deaf man's healing both took place in Gentile territory. Because the last sentence of chapter 7 recalls the messianic significance of this miracle with the words that reflect Isaiah 35, 5-6. The eyes of the blind will be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped, and then the lame will leap like a deer, and the tongue, or excuse me, and the tongue must shout for joy. Now, with any good teacher, and Jesus is by far the master teacher, repetition is a key. And it seems the disciples were still struggling to learn the lessons that Jesus wanted to teach them. And an interesting feature about Mark is how he highlighted Jesus' reteaching of lessons to his disciples so they could get it. In chapter 8, verses 1 through 30, um, there are multiple parallels with what Jesus has already taught in chapter 6, verse 31 through chapter 7, verse 37. Jesus teaches the same content, it seems, with new material so as to ensure the disciples understand the message. I wish we had time to compare these two accounts, but that might be something that you can do on your own. 
Now, from chapter 8, verse 31 to the end of chapter 10 is the journey towards Jerusalem. This section stresses Jesus' preparation of his disciples for his coming death and resurrection. And three times Jesus predicts his upcoming passion. And those three predictions can be used to divide up this section. The first announcement of Jesus' death in chapter 8, verses 31 to 33, is followed up by a section on discipleship. Um, in chapter 8, verse 34 through chapter 9, verse 1. Jesus explains that suffering would not only be his destiny, but theirs too. However, suffering was not the final note as Jesus' humiliation gives way to his glorification, something that a few of his disciples were able to see at his transfiguration. After the transfiguration event, there was a boy who was possessed by a demon that was causing violent seizures. Seizures. And this incident taught the disciples that they needed to serve God in a contrast excuse me, in a constant and conscious dependence on him that expressed itself in prayer. Now, the second prediction of Christ's death comes in chapter 9, verse 30 to 32. And like the first prediction, this second prediction is also followed by some lessons in discipleship. So from chapter 9, verse 30 through 55, Jesus instructed his disciples in the dangers that threatened their effectiveness. The dangers were the desire for greatness, a sectarian attitude, and failure in self-discipline. Then in chapter 10, verses 1 to 31, he continues teaching, and he explains the matter of divorce and remarriage, pointing out that a renewed heart wants to humbly conform to the divine plan for a man and a woman, rather than to find loopholes to try to escape the observance, or excuse me, to escape obedience, what the religious leaders were trying to do. The hostility of these religious leaders is contrasted with a simple trust that children demonstrate in the next few verses. Then from chapter 10, verse 17 through 31, we have the story of the young rich man, the young rich ruler, and more instruction on wealth. Abandoning his physical security and trusting in Jesus was too great of a risk to take for this rich young ruler, but his wealth brought him sorrow instead of joy. By the way, as far as I know, this is the only time in the Gospels when someone called to follow Jesus does not follow him. Jesus took the opportunity to remind his disciples not to look for immediate physical rewards to their self-sacrifice, but he encouraged them uh, that their self-sacrifice will be rewarded in the future kingdom. Now, chapter 10, verses 32 to 34, this is the third and last time Jesus tells his disciples about his upcoming death and resurrection. They still don't seem to understand because the very next thing that happens is James and John are asking for positions of honor in the coming kingdom. It seems they thought that when they got to Jerusalem, Jesus would establish the kingdom somehow. Jesus calls them on their requests and asks them if they are willing to suffer what he was going to suffer. They confidently affirm that they would endure all the trouble and suffering that Jesus would endure. But they obviously didn't understand what Jesus was predicting was going to happen to himself. And of course, the jealous reaction of the other disciples shows that many of the disciples had a selfish ambition. So to counter their misguided thinking, Jesus again taught them about humility. They needed to concentrate on present service rather than future honor. And verse 45 really puts into perspective um, things for the disciples. It says this, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve others, and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's the key verse there of the Gospel of Mark. This is a classic verse, and it's a verse that highlights Mark's emphasis of Jesus the servant, something the disciples still seem to have trouble with. Before entering Jerusalem, Jesus does one last miracle of healing of blind Bartimaeus. And this is the only passage, by the way, in Mark where someone called Jesus son of David. It's a messianic title. Ironic, isn't it? A blind beggar who never laid his eyes on Jesus believes that Jesus was exactly who he said he was. Maybe this blind man's faith was not blind at all. But then again, true faith doesn't require sight. 
The last major section of Mark is chapters 11 through 16. And chapter 11 is Jesus' formal presentation uh, of himself to Israel. Uh, the chapter begins with a triumphal entry. All four gospel writers record the triumphal entry, which shows its extreme importance. Then Jesus cursed the fig tree, cleansed the temple of the money changers, and came back to the fig tree with another lesson for his disciples. From chapter 11, verse 27 through chapter 12, verse 44, the entire section contains Jesus' teaching in the temple courtyard. The religious leaders first questioned Jesus on authority, and then his teaching on taxes, the resurrection, the greatest commandment. Then Jesus asked them a question about their teaching on the Messiah's sonship, a question that ended their attacks. And Jesus proceeded to condemn his accusers who had condemned him. They had condemned him because he did not fit their ideas of Messiah. He had shown that the Old Testament presented a different Messiah than the one that they wanted. Now he condemned them for failing to measure up to what the Old Testament required of them. Now, chapter 13 is the longest section of teaching um, in the Gospel of Mark that's recorded. It's the Olivet Discourse, which is similar to what happens in Matthew 24 and 25. It seems that Mark uses end times teaching to provide assurance that the leaders who plotted against Jesus would suffer God's judgment. But it also provided material about the second coming of Jesus, uh, a, a note of assurance to these disciples that Jesus was going to come again. A quick overview of the chapter would go like this. Uh, verses 1 through 4 is the setting of the teaching. Verses 5 through 8 is material about the first half of the tribulation, while verses 9 through 23 is material about the second half of the tribulation. The second coming is given in verses 24 to 27, and it's followed up by two parables. And so just as the wise and faithful steward prepares for the return of the house's owner, so believers in the tribulation should be prepared for the return of Christ. And if this is true for the generation that will see the return of Christ at the end of the tribulation, how much more is it for us awaiting the rapture of the church before the tribulation? The point of the parables was that you would be prepared no matter in what generation you're living. Now, chapters 14 through 16 brings many of the themes in Mark to a climax. Chapter 14, which begins the Passion narrative, is focused on different sorts of attitudes towards Jesus. The religious leaders are bent on getting rid of him, and so they are plotting his death. On the other hand, their murderous plot is contrasted by Mary of Bethany's act of remarkable devotion to Jesus. For the disciples, Mary's anointing of Jesus was a waste. The money she spent on Jesus could have been used better. What a portrait of how little these disciples value. Jesus. And then there's Judas. His betrayal of Jesus and collusion with the Pharisees show that even though he was with Jesus from the beginning, he still didn't believe. So lots of different ideas about Jesus. Jesus' observance of the Passover happens next with his disciples in verses 12 through 26 of chapter 14. In celebrating the Passover, Jesus predicts that he will be betrayed. And then Jesus uses the bread and wine available from the Passover meal to institute the Lord's Supper. The bread and wine are symbolic of his body and blood that will be sacrificed on the cross. As they left the upper room and headed to the Mount of Olives, Jesus predicted that the disciples would fall away and that Peter would deny him, verses 26 through 31. When we get to the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus begins to pray and consecrates himself to his Father's will. Not long after this prayer, Judas arrives with a band of men to address Jesus. Jesus submits to the arresting authority here in fulfillment of scriptures. That's verses 43 through 50. When the disciples see that Jesus is indeed committed to his suffering, they don't stay, but instead they choose to flee. 
One author makes a really good statement here in this context. He said, a large part of following Christ is allowing Him to form our expectations. Failing to do so sets up one for failure when He goes a direction we do not expect. Now, after the arrest, Christ is then brought before the religious leaders of the Jews. They are looking to find testimony by which they can condemn him to death. Um, Then they attempt to get Jesus to condemn himself by claiming to be the Messiah, which he does, and at which point they're able to sentence him to death for his assertion. And during the trial of Jesus, Peter is outside warming himself by a fire. This is where he denies Christ three times. And throughout this whole chapter 14, Mark persistently focuses on Jesus' knowledge of everything that is about to occur. You you see the phrases, as is written about him, for it is written. Mark is emphasizing the sovereignty of God over Jesus' death, and he is doing so in order to cause readers to reject the idea that Jesus' death is a mishap or a mistake. Mark wants readers to meditate on Christ's purpose for coming and to see their own need of his death. Now, Mark 15 tells us that the Jewish leaders hand Jesus over to the Roman authorities. Jesus is tried by Pilate, and after listening to what the people want, Pilate orders the crucifixion of Jesus. He's mocked and beaten by Roman soldiers. He's forced to carry his cross to to Golgotha, the place of his crucifixion. Mark presents the final four hours of Jesus' earthly ministry as dominated by darkness and the weight of abandonment. After Christ dies, Joseph of Arimathea, one of the religious leaders, buries the bodies of Jesus. Now, the last chapter of Mark 16 is about the resurrection. The resurrection account of Jesus and Mark is very brief and leaves out details other gospel writers include, but the message is very clear. Jesus had escaped death and was raised up from the grave. He appears to many after the resurrection as proof that he did, in fact, raise from the grave. Now, that's all that we have time for for the Gospel of Mark. Like I said earlier, the Gospel of Mark is a very compact gospel. In fact, if you are going to begin to read about the life of Christ, I would start in the Gospel of Mark because it provides a basic outline. And then you can read Matthew and then Luke and then John to kind of fill in all the details. Now, next week, we'll begin to work through the Gospel of Luke, which is much longer, one that's going to take us two weeks to work through instead of one. Again, Mark was a shorter gospel, giving us the bare bones and outline of the life of Christ. Now, Luke being the longest, he's going to fill in a lot more details. So, email any questions you have to BibleReading at lmbc.org, and I will talk with you all next time.